I'm an alcoholic. My name is Gail DeWitt, and I'm hi, um, visiting you from Manhattan Beach, California. Can you hear me okay? No? How about this? Is this any better? Uh, hmm. How about this? Is this any better? That's better. I think this one might be off. Okay. <clears throat> Yes, uh, I want to thank uh, the committee for inviting me to come here. Uh, you guys are so conscientious. They asked me so long ago. You know? <laughs> um, and I had never been to Wyoming that I can remember. And uh, I was a traveling drunk. <laughs> um, but I could, couldn't remember, so I was like absolutely delighted uh, why I came to California was so I can get familiar with the northwest part of the country. So thank you for inviting me. This is a beautiful country here, you guys. And I uh, thank you, Mike and Mickey, for they generously gave me three hours of their time yesterday. And just uh, it was delightful. It's really beautiful. Uh, and so here, here we are, you know, all fat and happy and <laughs> ate our desserts and cheesecakes. And, you know, every time I'm, I'm at an event like this and I'm so blessed, you know, I get to fellowship and I get a lot of airtime in the program. And every once in a while, though, I like to remember that as we're all sitting here all dressed up and laughing and fellowshipping, that there is some alcoholic out there somewhere that uh, will never get the opportunity to even grace the door with their shadow. You know, every now I just think about how fortunate we are and uh, how much I love it here. You know? Well, anyway, I'll tell you a little bit about my drinking story. Um, it didn't look like there was a whole hell of a lot of new people in the room, but... Uh, just humor me a little bit, and I'd like to see if there are people here in their first 90 days of sobriety. Would you just humor me and raise your hand? Okay. Yeah. Um, welcome. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I always know that my group is doing really well by the number of new people that are in the room. You know, it's like if we're carrying the message, there's new people in the room. So welcome to AA. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my drinking. Uh, you know, I started drinking before I was double digits in age and uh, was complete and done in NAA before I was of legal age to even start. You know? <laughs> um, I drank from the time I was about six years old until I was 19 or 20 and got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, my drinking, uh, what happened to me in that period of time uh, when I came here, I felt like I was about 90 years old because of all the miles and the things I had seen and the things that I had done. I was just so weary and sick and tired and um, shattered, really shattered. And uh, all because I didn't know that what I was putting in my mouth um, was creating this threefold thing in me. I had no clue that what was up with me was drinking. Um, how I was able to drink from such a young age is um, I come from a family where on my mother's side of the family, there's a, a great deal of drug addiction. And my drug of choice is alcohol. The only way I was interested in anything else is if it could make me drink longer. Um, I am an alcoholic. Um, and on my mother's side, there's drug addiction. And on my father's side was the alcoholism. And... Um, my father's side of the family were the local. I was born and raised in a little town called Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, the whole Rhode Island, because you guys are little. But, um, I was born and raised in Newport, Rhode Island. And, and my father's family, not only in my household, my father was the alcoholic. And he had three other sisters, and two of them were alcoholic. 
And um, small place like Rhode Island, we were a real close-knit family. And everybody Sundays all over my grandmother's house. She had all 26 of her grandchildren over there. We all saw each other a lot. And um, my father's older sister was um, a fall-down, pass-out Geno. And because she was my aunt and lived fairly close, I was able to go to her house frequently. She was, you know, it was safe. It was in the family. And she had a daughter my age. And um, when my aunt Thelma uh, fell out, passed out from, from being a geno, um, was the first time that someone, um, one of my cousins said, well, taste this, you know. And I remember taste, tasting some kinds of alcohol uh, many times, and I just thought it was disgusting. It was, it was like it didn't taste good, and yeah, it was kind of warm and fuzzy, but I just couldn't get over the taste of it, you know. And then uh, one time they were having a party, and uh, uh, a lot of people were, like, passed out. And there was all different kinds of stuff there, and they gave me some sherry. And I was like, this is the stuff. <laughs> it was sweet, and it was warm, and uh, it just went down so nice. And I was just like, it tastes like cough syrup, like cough drops to me. I was like, oh, this is good. And um, that's how it went. It went from this is good and uh, the feeling that I had then. In my home, there was a great deal of tension. If you, if you come from an alcoholic home, um, this is how it was for me. I was, I'm the oldest of five children, and my father uh, was a finger-popping, dancing kind of drunk when he started out. You know what I mean? Interesting people would come home with him, I thought. My mother didn't think so. <laughs> he brought interesting people in the house, you know, and the music would get loud and the schedule, you know, we didn't go to bed on time for school, you know, and I thought that was really happening, you know. So it's like, oh, man. Uh, and, I, and I always, I learned the signals, you know, um, as a child uh, as to what kind of evening was going to be. Like if my father came in the house and he had his shades on, party time. If he had, you know, sunglasses on coming in the door, it was going to be party time. And I learned a whole bunch of other signals as his drinking progressed. And as um, the oldest of five children in a house with an alcoholic, that's what I was really preoccupied with. Um, I was really preoccupied with, as my father's drinking progressed, learning how to read my mother, learning how to read my father, and um, doing what I needed as the, as the tension and the alcoholism progressed. Now, we didn't know that's what it was you know, um, that we had alcoholism, the family was affected by alcoholism. But as that progressed, I kept learning everything I could learn because I had this illusion that if I knew the behavior and I could memorize it, I could keep myself and my four younger brothers and sisters safe. Because what I understood, even being before I was double digits in age, is, is that when my father was drinking, my mother was really agitated and upset, and I learned the behaviors, and that they were so engrossed in whatever battle was happening between them that um, they often enlisted my help. You know, the two people that I love the most were so confused at what was taking place because of my father's alcoholism, which we didn't know what it was, that it was just a crazy in our house sometimes. And for me, embarrassing because our family was so close-knit, and my father's drinking as it progressed got to be the topic of discussion on Sundays over at my grandmother's house, you know. Um, so it went from finger popping and uh, loud music and uh, being able to stay up late and to drink the head off people's beer and uh, that kind of thing to uh, watching my mother 
get real uptight about a half hour before my dad come, came home, and then uh, watching, you know, we had to clear the, you know, get off, get out of the, uh, out of the kitchen, then my dad would be eating alone, and my mother would have us all separate, I mean, it was just like, and I just really was learning that behavior, and uh, one of the things that I found out was that if I wasn't conditioned for alcoholism by, uh, just watching and uh, learning the, the nature of the beast, uh, then I was probably born right out of the chute with it because the first time I picked up alcohol, I mean, it was just like well, the wet was just waiting to get poured on. That's really my story. I think I was already there. Um, the wet got poured on uh, over at my aunt's house, and I was really, uh, from that point on, it was just uh, progressive, progressive, progressive. Now, when you're, um, before you're double digits in age, what alcoholism uh People don't notice, you know, because um, what was happening in my family is my family, my mom and dad were very engrossed with dealing with his progression. And what happened over time, the, the finger popping stopped and the music didn't get turned on and it escalated to the police were starting to come to my home. You know, and, you know, the other kids in the neighborhood would be standing outside looking. So I was starting to learn something about shame. And I was learning this unspoken thing that happens in the alcoholic home where what happens here stays here. I was learning that signal real good, you know, that uh, when I went over to my grandmother's on Sunday, it was not to be discussed what happened in our home, you know. And I don't know if anybody ever said that to me, but I knew I, I got that message for sure. And... Um, so, you know, the police were starting to come, and then, you know, there were kids in the neighborhood, and we all went to school together, and there was that question, so I was starting to get a little bit of shame about that. And um, uh, I was just uh, preoccupied with stuff that just normal little kids just don't think about, you know. Um, and over time, what happened was uh, my father turned into a violent drunk, and I actually saw my mom get hit, you know, and... Um, uh, things moved along and moved along, and finally, when I was about nine years old, the point where my mother finally left, uh, she went from getting hit to where I saw her get beat. And then it, um, what happened was one day he hit one of us, and that seemed to be her breaking point. And uh, that's when, um, you know, it was, and it was a big dramatic thing. You know, the police came again, and, um, you know, I remember my father being in the police car, my grandfather coming over, and we were all in my grandfather's car. And... Um, I absolutely loved my father, and I just adored him. And one of the things that I intuitively knew um, was I was watching that, that last thing that happened. He was in the police car, and we were all in my grandfather's car. And I'm looking over in the police car, and it was kind of like, it just didn't seem fair to me. I identified with my father. It was kind of like, well, we're all here together, and, and somehow I think we'll make it. But dad's over there with strangers, you know, so I asked if I could go with him. You know, it's like, somebody needs to be with daddy, you know. Um, I just knew that what he was up to and what he had done um, was not the man that I loved. And one of the things that I learned as a child um, to keep myself safe, and um, I, I ran the interference ap after time um, to try to spare my mother from getting hit. That really was my family job. Um, I would learn the signals. I had learned them for a long time, and then when tension escalated, usually what I would do was try to distract one of them so that it wouldn't, so that my mom wouldn't get hit. That's really what was up. And then as things got more and more progressive, what I just tried to do was distract it enough so that one of us wouldn't get hit, you know. And, you know, five and six years old, that, that should not have been my business, 
It really, and it just made me emotionally set up just for being sick. And the other thing was because I didn't, because I had the shame thing going, you know, my father's in the cop car again, and, you know, we're all going to go over to my grandmother's house. I'm not going to be able to talk about it again. So I got to being a real adept liar, you know. So I got this shame thing going on, and I'm learning to lie because I know that I'm not supposed to talk about what happens in our house. And uh, it was just, I just had the makings. And I also had a great deal of, when they said, no, you're not going with your father, I felt sorry for him, and I felt sorry for me. So the self-pity kind of started. And here's the thing that um, was really a turning point for me in my drinking, was that nine years old, um, my dad, who really was my hero, uh, he left, he was gone on his own, and for the first time in my life, my mother was working and she was out of the house. And I was used to coming home, and every day my mother was there the first nine years of my life. And not only was that over with, she began working and going to school, but we were for a while living with grandparents and until she got on her feet, you know. And it was just chaotic to me. It was just kind of like, Dad's gone, Mom's working, um, I've got this shame, I've got this self-pity. And what else was going on was I was in a, I was in a rage, you know, I mean, I was in a rage. It's kind of like my mom's gone, my dad, you know, and it happened like this. It was ugly, and the kids in the neighborhood knew and would ask me about it at school, and I can't talk about it. We were over here at the family, and I was just like a pressure cooker from this high on. I was just a pressure cooker. And um, what drinking really did for me was just kind of take the edge off of that. When I got over my cousins, I said, I like to move. I like to move around um, because I didn't have the responsibility um, and this kind of uh, tension that I had with worry and concern for my four younger brothers and sisters, that escalated when um, my mother became the single head of the household. It was like, you know, my concern was like, like she's gone, and a lot of stuff fell on me, being the oldest of the five. And um, what I got to tell you about alcoholism, uh, whether you're drinking or not, if you're in a family of an alcoholic and you're uh, a child, what happens, you get robbed of childhood. I was doing things that no child should do, you know. I was making sure that my four younger brothers and sisters did their homework and putting them to bed and babysitting and just doing all kinds of stuff that most kids my age just weren't doing from other households. And I was, just, I was really aware of that. Um, and I had a great deal of self-pity about that and, and really more and more rage about that. Okay, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm sitting on. Um, now, because I'm such a good actress... And because of the dynamics, what happened to me was I was so shattered by our family splitting up, then living with my grandparents and my mother working and all that. I was like, you know what, Gail? I took on the role of being the goody two-shoes. I said, you know what? If you don't make any waves, if you uh, just be good and just be uh, supportive to your mom, um, for the, you won't get thrown out. You know what I mean? That's kind of how it worked in my childhood. It was kind of like, make yourself needed in this family, and you won't get lost, you know? So really, that's kind of the role I took on. I um, sat on all those the feelings that I just told you about, and what I did was I did make sure that they got fed, and I did make sure the homework got done, including my own, and I made sure everything, you know what I mean? I mean, I just took that on, and um, with the idea of the more useful I am, um, the more I'm needed, and I won't get thrown away. You know what I mean? It won't be one more thing that goes chaotic in this family, you know. So that's kind of what I did. And, and, um, and then after school, uh, while my mom would, would be still home for a few hours or something, I'd go down to my aunt's house and I would drink. And when she fell down and passed out. And um, as, uh, you know, my mom um, hates lying. 
So how I justified, uh, you know, being sneaky was to myself, it's kind of like, you know what, uh, if I had the responsibility of, of four kids, and da, 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 I told myself, I'm like, I have the right to act like an adult. I can smoke cigarettes if I want to, and I can drink if I want to. Hell, I'm doing every other damn thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just kind of like, that's how I rationalized that, how I would lie to my mom about where I was and how long I was there and who I was with. And um, I made myself uh, real comfortable with the rationalization process and um, was very free uh, about my lying and got very uh, good at it. And so uh, over time, what progression looked like for me was, um, you know, I, I was doing my goody two-shoe role so that I would stay needed and feel safe and take care of my uh, four younger brothers and sisters. And um, uh, I was um, an excellent student at school. Um, they bumped me up a grade, and uh, I just was like a, an overachiever. You know, um, so all the, it looked really good on the outside. And see, we know how to do that. You know what I mean? Uh, alcohol, we know how to get the, good, the, the background to look real good. You know, um, I know how to run a game. And um, when you are uh, less than 21 years old and you have, by the time I was, you know, 12 years old, to have the drinking habit that I had, um, you really do have to know how to talk pretty fast and do a lot of smoke and mirror kind of stuff to be able to take care of what you need. You know, so um, I, I was really a great manipulator and a great liar and a great actress. And um, I used to pride myself on that. I used to pride myself on how well I could get over, you know, how well I could keep my face straight and just tell you the biggest lie and that you would have no clue. I, I, would just, I just prided myself on that. I had a lot of practice at that. And what started to happen was um, over time, now it looked like normal 12, 13-year-old kind of trouble at first where you skip school a little bit and your grades drop a little. And um, uh, to this day in my mother's house, dinner is at 530. That's just kind of always been the rule. That's just, if, you, if, you wanted, if you wanted to eat at any time at 530 East Coast time um, and show up at my mother's house, there would be food on the table. I mean, it's just always been that way, you know. And I would start missing stuff like that. And, uh, you know, there were some things that were like the rule in our house. You know, one was that you didn't lie. Um, you showed up for dinner at 530. And um, uh, school, there was a real high value placed on education. So I was starting to miss school. I was starting to miss coming home at 530. And I was lying my ass off like all the time. And um, at first it looked kind of normal. And it, and it was kind of like, well, you know, she's got so much responsibility and she's doing so well, da 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 Every, every kid just deserves um, to, uh, you know, kick up their heels a little bit. Nobody was real concerned about that. And plus, you know, I was so good at the control thing that nobody really knew. What happened when I was 13, though, um, somebody, uh, a member of my family, gave me my first substance other than alcohol. And um, this is how I did other substances other than alcohol. Somebody would put something in my hand, I would pop it in my mouth and say, now what's going to happen? That's, that's how I did stuff, you know. And I remember when I, you know, coming around here, people who knew that about me would say, if you would work the third step the way you used to take drugs with that kind of faith, Dale, that something's going to happen, you will stay sober a long time. And they were right, you know. They were right. Um, but that's how I was, you know. I'd pop it, um, and what's going to happen? You know, and, and you tell me and I would, I, I would wait for the effect, you know. And what I started to find out was there was stuff that would make it so that I wouldn't have to go to sleep when I, when I drank. 
And um, so I learned how to mix speed, and I learned to find out, you know, where the speed was. And um, I learned that I could stay up for days at a time. Um, didn't have to sleep, or I could get the house done, the kids' homework in bed, I mean, all within hours, and uh, drink, you know, I mean, I said, this is wonderful, this is wonderful stuff. Um, but what started to happen, um, it was like greased, skid downhill when I mixed alcohol and other, other drugs. It was like, um, here's this pressure cooker, all those feelings I told you about, the self-pity, the anger, the rage, all the lying and all that stuff, you know. And when I started to mix uh, alcohol with the speed, every now and then the lid would come off the pressure cooker like, and what it would look like was maybe I would swear or maybe I'd get a little defiant, you know. Uh, nothing nobody couldn't handle, but it just started being like, and if you didn't, you know what I mean? And people kind of look like, wow, where did that come from? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like rage. You know what I mean? But just for a couple of seconds, just for a couple of seconds, a little out of control, you know. Oh, that's just teenager stuff, you know. And then what happened, though, by the time I was three years into that, when I was 60, I was totally um, into it. Uh, what happened was um, uh, I found a substance that just let the pressure cook, just took the lid off. And I remember... Um, the day, because I remember how shocked my family was. Uh, what was starting to go on with me was um, the school b- began calling home because I was missing many days. Um, when I did show up at 5.30 at the table, I was very shut down, and uh, the anger was starting to hang out a little bit more. And what happened was um, as I started to be able to get more and more access to you know, the drugs that would let me drink more, the pressure cooker came off and just this, uh, the person that had just been stuffed down all this, just came out. And I remember watching my mother's face one time, when the, you know, it just flew off and I was just kind of like, and my father's gone because, and I just, the stream of just vitriolic, just rage and uh, um <laughs> it was it was ugly. It was really ugly. And I remember, uh, you know, everybody at the table kind of like my brothers and sisters kind of freezing. And my mother just kind of like, you know, they were stunned. And what they said to me, you know, it, you know, as I got recovery, my mother said, it was almost like you had changed overnight. That's how well I had kept a lid on it. That's how well control I had. Um, that to them it was a big surprise. And I remember standing there real defiant. And I was very in-your-face drunk. You know, I was an in-your-face like, here, take that. That's kind of how it got. So I was a very in-your-face. I was kind of like, I remember like, um, what the hell are you so surprised about? You know what I mean? I mean, I, it, it, would, it would get like that. And um, I mean, you don't talk this way to my mother. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like uh, it's more than anything, um, she was a disciplinarian, but what I love about her so much now is that she really, she's a lady. You know, she's a lady. It's just like I just shocked the hell out of her. And um, they didn't know what to do with me. I could see that, um, and it enraged me that as my drinking got progressive and I was more and more confused about what was happening to me, it enraged me that as the pressure cooker, the lid flew off and this stuff came out, that it enraged me I could see that my mother did not know how to protect me. That I could see, I could see the confusion. Like she took care of her five kids and she was in college and she was doing all this stuff for us. And I could see that every time that I acted out that she was bewildered. And that put me into rage. And then it got passed over to her dad, who I absolutely adored, adored to my grandfather. I did not want my grandfather to know that I wasn't an angel. But anyway, word got around. <laughs> and, um, and I remember him talking to me, you know. And um, 
uh, saying to me, you know, Gail, um, he was talking to me about the value of education and, you know, how, how much the family wanted for me and, you know, that I, you know, was an honor roll student and not to blow it and I only had X amount of time to go before I was in high school and just, um, you know, he was a real community-minded civic man, and his brother was like the sheriff. And t- I mean, just really responsible, civic-minded, like good people. And I just was just, I didn't know why, but I just didn't want to hear him. I didn't want to hear my mother. I didn't know what I had was progressive. And um, I damn near told him to uh, buzz off, you know. And um, I could see also in him, now my grandfather was this big, strapping, six-foot-five, um, I just loved him to death. He was just, and loved to laugh, you know. And I remember him talking to me. And I remember, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I remember the, the look of hurt and bewilderment in his eyes. And, I was, and what kind of registered in me was kind of like, and he doesn't know what to do either. So my mother doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to do. My father's out there someplace flying around just drunk, you know, um, dealing with his own thing. And I was pissed and I was scared. And I didn't know what I had. And what started happening was as my drinking progressed, I was so out of control over time that um, rather than, than come face the facts that I was out of control and not be able to uh, rationalize to myself what was going on with me, I couldn't stand the fact that I didn't understand, and so I just rationalized to myself. And I said, you know what, I don't really care about school. But the truth was, on the way to the bus, if somebody gave me anything, I had no control whether or not I was going to make it or not. And on some level, I knew that. But I couldn't tell myself that. It was just too scary to be 16 years old and totally out of control and to know the people that I loved the most were, were just as baffled as I was. I just couldn't let myself know that, you know. And I did everything I could so that it wouldn't come to the surface, you know. Um, but on some level, I did know that. And what happened over time was that um, my drinking started to be around the clock. And, um, like, I would have a canteen of, of vodka and orange juice in my locker at school, um, I knew uh, most of the kids um, that I hung around in Newport were, Newport uh, uh, has a, a really strong population of wealthy community. And um, I found, you know, and I hung out with the rich kids because they could take care of my habit, you know. Um, and, and I just worked it. And um, what happened to me was um, over time, uh, I, I, they, they knew that I was drinking in school. They just couldn't catch me. Um, I also began dealing drugs in school, and they just couldn't catch me. Um, I was missing more than the acceptable amount of school and still uh, maintaining, like, you know, really great grades. And what happened was they called me into the office, the dean, the dean of girls, and called me in. And first it was just a one-on-one, and she said, you know, Gail, we know that you are drinking. We know that you are um, a leader here, and what you're doing to lead is not a good thing. You've got a lot of kids following you around. We know that uh, you're doing some illegal activity. Um, your grades look great, but because of your lack of attendance, um, we're going to make you repeat a grade. And, um, you know, I was just like, <laughs> whatever, you know. Uh, I mean, I was just, uh, you know, I was out of control. And um, they had a dress code there, and I just totally started ignoring it. And so what happened was by the time I got to senior high school, they just kicked me out. You know, I went from being an honor roll student on the college track um, you know, uh, my family really proud of me. To my senior year, they said, you know what, Gail, you can go to graduation or not, um, but uh, you're not graduating. And um, if you do come back, you're going to repeat, you know, your senior year. And um, we would prefer that you not come back because we know that you're doing illegal activity. And I was like, you know what, I'm out of here. 
And uh, what started happening for me, um, I had to go home with that news. It was not a nice day. It was a bad day. And, um, and so rather than go in and say, you know what, I'm so messed up and I'm so confused and I'm so screwed up that um, they let me go from school, what I went in with, I went in with this real cocky, uh, bold attitude and um, just uh, delivered the information in a real unacceptable way. I was real ugly. I was real hostile. I got the whole family all shaken up. My favorite thing was with all this chaos and confusion I had inside was I would go places and I'd get the environment outside to match my insides, and then I'd be happy. It's like, yeah, everybody's messed up now, huh? Yeah. Like, it, all, it all looks like me now. It's like, yeah, go. You know, that, that's the only way I could stand it. Um, so I'd go home and I'd deliver it and got everybody in chaos and it was all messed up. And, um, and my mother just said to me, she said, you know what, Gail, you've got four younger brothers and sisters. She said, I love you very much and I want you here. And she said, um, but what was going on was uh, I always looked older than I, what I, than I was. I think I was born six foot tall, you know. I always looked older and I was going out with the guys a lot older. And um, I was stealing just because I could. There was no need for me to steal, but just because I could. And um, I was starting to bring that kind of stuff into the house. And my mom, and you know, and I was the ki- I was taking care of the kids. She was working and going to school. And um, she's like, "I love you, and I want you here, um, but these are the rules." And she told them to me again. And she said, "And if you can't follow them, there's, there's too much at stake." You know, she's like, "Got four other younger kids watching you, and if you can't do it, I'm going to have to ask you to leave." And I was like, that witch, I'm raising her five kids, you know what I mean? I mean, I just had this whole stream of rationale why I just should just lose it. And so I did. It was a, just a, a, a horrific scene, and it enabled me to storm out. And uh, what happened was um, I left home. And uh, I left home, and I didn't go back to school. And what I did was um, I knew... I could feel in me, you know that feeling of impending doom where you know something bad's going to go down? You just don't know what, but it's breathing right on your neck. I had that, like, intense by my senior year of high school. Like, like you know, hell flame licking at my heels all the time. And I was kind of like, you know, something's going to happen to me. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't feel like it's going to be good. I could, I'll steal my family this and so I, but That's how I started traveling. I started hitchhiking back and forth across the country. And whenever I was in motion, I would stay sober. And the the minute I stopped was when everything would happen, because I would do the same things all over again. You know, it's like wherever I I went, there I was. You know what I mean? So I would start stealing again, and I would start messing around with the wrong men again. And, you know, people would be at first real gracious, and they'd be, you know, this young girl inviting me into their home and be all nice to me. And then they'd find something stolen in their house, and then they'd find some bum guy in their house. And... Um, you know, and what would happen is, like, at first it would take, like, maybe six or seven weeks, and they'd be like, you know, you got to go. <laughs> you just got to get out of here. You know, go back to where you came from. And what happened was, over time, as my drinking progressed, it went from being over a period of, like, six weeks to be, like, six days I was out. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, the whole thing just got real fast. You know what I mean? I would steal. I'd, I'd mess with the wrong people. I'd, I'd you know, have stolen goods in their house. I'd have bad people in their house. Uh, something ugly would happen, and they'd be like, you're out of here. And it'd be like, it just happened faster and faster and faster. And um, what happened was I ended up on, on the West Coast, where I live now, actually, where I hit bottom. I ended up on the West Coast, and um, I did my favorite thing. I found out. What I would do is find out who the dealer was. I didn't care who was holding him. I'd find out who the dealer was, and um, and I'd go and I'd like uh, make him like my own man. <laughs> you know, it's like I got my stash safe, right? And so I found out I was in Hermosa Beach, and I found out who the dealer was, who the big dealer was, and um, I got right in there. 
and um, was living there. And what happened, these people were twice my age, you know, I had no business there. And what happened was I got in over my head. And we were on, um, this place was kind of like a duplex place. And on the second floor I was now, I was, uh, my drinking just kind of made, made my world get more narrow and more narrow and more narrow. And I just lived in the space of my head. I didn't really care a whole lot about what you had to say or what you had to do unless you had something for me to put in my system. If you didn't, you really, I really didn't have much to say to you and pretty much ignore you. Didn't even want to be bothered. You know what I mean? It's just like I, I had business to take care of. I was either getting drunk, coming off a drunk, um, planning the next one. I had business to take care of. It was my life. And if you weren't going to contribute to that, I had no use for you. And um, it really was just kind of like that. And so I had use for all these people in this house in Hermosa Beach, and uh, they had use for me too. And uh, when I started to find out what that was, um, I got scared. And what was going on on the first, on the second floor of the house where we would all be getting wasted all the time, and I found Angel Dust, and Angel Dust would just do such a number of I me, mean, I couldn't even write my name. And um, I would black out for great periods of time. And so for a long time, I did not know that on the first floor um, that they were pimping off teenage girls down there to take care of my habit. One of the people that was living in the house, that, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. And then as I started to come to more and more, I started to realize, you know what, I'm living in a shooting gallery. They're stolen TVs over there, and they're stolen this over there. And, and I said, you know, um, you are in trouble, you know. And, um, and I was torn between the, the, the terror and the fear of um, my stealing had escalated to um, I, I knew how to steal cars real easy. Uh, my favorite was to get new cars. Um, it went from uh, stealing stuff out of stores like, you know, you know, cassettes and tapes and music and stuff like that to um, I started going into people's homes. And the thing about doing that, see, I was like, I'm, I'm like an a adrenaline junkie. That's part of what my drinking was about. So I loved going and robbing you while I could hear you in another room. That was my little thrill thing, you know what I mean? And, and I would do that. I could hear people in the kitchen eating. I'd be in their living room taking everything that I could get my hands on. And um, it was just starting to get real, real crazy like that, like the, the risk and um, the, the amount of times that uh, – um, I was just really making it away from, like, not getting busted. Uh, was just getting closer and closer and closer. And um, what started happening for me was um, the people I hung around with um, all passed weapons. Um, and because I was usually the only female, um, I got to uh, carry the weapons. When we went into any place where we were buying drugs or um, doing heavy drinking, when we went to any uh, bar, if something was going to go down, like when we were doing... Um, any kind of a, a drug transaction, uh, I would pack everything. I had a real big afro, so if we had a lot of joints and everything, all that went in my hair. Just packed it in. And, um, and I would be at the bar or wherever, you know, with all the, the weapons and the drugs, because the rationale being that I would be the one that not, would, not get frisked. And plus I, looked real, I, I knew how to look real out of it and real kicked back while people were taking care of business. And... Um, it just got real scary. Um, every now and then, in between all the angel dust and all the drinking, and I would come to enough, and I would look, and I'd be like, uh, you haven't known these people for this long, and look what's going on. And I always used to be able to tell myself before that that um, there was always something that made it so that it was, you guys were worse than me. I could always come up with something, you know, and um, towards the end of my drinking, I couldn't do it anymore. You know what I mean? I started getting, I would come to enough, and I'd be like, you are just like them. 
you are stealing, you are in the house, you are here living in a shooting gallery, um, you've stolen most of the, you know, a lot of the stuff that's stocked up against that wall. Um, you know what I mean? It was just like it just was getting um, out of control. And then my drinking was so focused, I didn't even know that I was living with the man that was on trial uh, for the murder of his wife. And how I found that out was, we're all sitting in one of those circles where you pass the jug around, electric wine around, you know, big old gallon thing, and... Um, Somebody asked me, you know, what I thought about, you know, what I'd read in the paper and what, what I thought about it. And I'll tell you the honest to God truth, I absolutely had no clue. I had no clue that that was going on. And so um, they were asking me what I thought about, um, you know, uh, what was going on with the trial and everything. And they asked me if this guy ever talked to me about it. And um, I just was clueless. I had no clue. And so I asked him about it. And... Um, I remember the conversation real well, and it was real scary. It was real scary. And uh, I was lucid, like, for a night, the night that we had that discussion. I remember lying wide awake and thinking, i got to get out of here. And, like, where, where, you know, I alienated my family. I hadn't been home for months and months and months and months. When I would do my hitchhiking thing, I'd be gone for a minimum of six months up to 18 months. I think my family said it was the longest I'd been gone. And, um, and I was, all I knew was I needed to get out. And uh, I, I, so I started bargaining with God. I think um, I didn't have too many conversations with God, but I started bargaining. And I said, if you let me out of Hermosa Beach in one piece, and if you let me get away from this guy where he does not confess anything to me, because I was starting to feel like he was going to confess something to me, I was like, I don't want to know, you know. It's like, if I can get out of here safe, and if you just let me get back to Newport, Rhode Island, God, I promise, I promise, I promise, I'll stop doing the illegal stuff. I'll stop stealing cars. I'll stop stealing stuff. I'll stop. Uh, this is how I used to dress towards the end of um, my, my drinking there. Uh, so sad. I was just standing on a, co- a corner in Hermosa Beach like this. Jeans cut off to, up to the pocket, okay. Um, with a, a bandana tied around my chest, right? This big old afro, and um, with a pipe, you know, um, standing on the corner. And um, what I loved about my jeans was um, my cutoffs were a half pint of Jose Cuervo gold fitting there, real nice. And um, I remember being introduced to bars, and what I, I, ne- I don't understand bars to this day. Why you would go in and pay for a drink, which you could pay for a half pint, never made sense to me. People breathing on you and asking to do it, interfering with your drinking. I don't understand bars. I don't understand why you would want to try to dance, why you want to have conversation. When I went to a bar, I was pissed off. I was kind of like, stop breathing on me. You're into that, and you want me to pay for what? You know what I mean? I can go across the street and buy some, gold, buy some gold for the same price. You know what I mean? So I didn't even, I, that was just like interference. You know what I mean? It's kind of like bars. Um, so I stood on the corner with my cutoffs up to here and my bandana and my big afro and my hash pipe, you know, and watched all the kids my age going to school in Hermosa Beach and uh, was trying to plot how I was going to get back to the East Coast. And um, I did pull it up together enough to get back to the East, East Coast. And I did carry out this promise to God. Um, I had promised God that if I got back to the East Coast, that um, the stealing would stop and I would not do any more drugs. And I did that. And um, what I did was, um, you know, using that, uh, that skill I had of being able to pull you in, uh, I got the background to look real good. I went and found a nursing student who was, you know, in really good with her family, and I got her to get an apartment with me, and because she was going to nursing school, she got me a job in, in Newport Hospital. 
and um, we got a place like was almost diagonally across the street from the hospital and um, you know and uh, she had nice stuff and um, I got this little job in uh, as a dietary aide they gave me this pink little pink uniform and white shoes and I was kind of like I thought you know it's like I'm going to be a good girl you know what I mean I look like a brownie jam there you know what I mean and I was just really proud of myself I got that job and I'm not stealing I'm not doing any I'm not doing anything illegal so I still wasn't a legal age to drink but hell everybody drinks right everybody I know drink um, and so I was just kind of like I'm just going to drink I'm going to do my job at the hospital I'm not going to mess with anybody and I came to town and my plan was I'd get my family back in my good graces and I had just really broken my family's heart um, my mother didn't want anything to do with me my brothers and sisters did not come over and see me and I come from a tight knit family they did not knock on the door they did not even come over and um what happened, now this is what my bottom looks like. It was an ordinary day. I had been drinking at that hospital. On every floor where I delivered food, I had booze. And uh, there was an uh, unknown to me an AA meeting in that hospital. And the long time of that group was at the hospital as an engineer. And, you know, all the stuff in the dietary aid department is downstairs on the bottom floor. And he was watching me. And he knew I was an alcoholic. And I'm just getting wasted on all the floors, just, you know, and I'm alienating myself from everybody because I lied all the time. And I forget which lie I told to who, and I pissed people off, and they stopped talking to me. I never got along with the, the coffee club kind of thing. I just never worked that out. And um, so everybody was mad at me, and um, what was very confusing to me was I wasn't stealing, and I wasn't doing drugs, and I got sicker than I ever was. I had no idea that it was the, the amount of booze. I was getting drunk twice a day. I was getting drunk while I was working. You got, I got done going through 6. You'd work until 2 or 2.30. I would go home and pass out and wake up, and I'd get drunk again. I was getting drunk twice a day. And what happened was um, I was starting to have the horrors. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and the sheets, you know, the sheets would be soaked, and I would just be, like, wringing wet. And I'm just screaming, you know, to myself. I would try to wake up, like, can you open your eyes? It'll be okay if you just open your eyes. And when I realized my eyes were already open, you know, it's like, they're open, <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, and I'm li- living with a nursing student who's studying, and, and she just let me know. She says, this is not working. You know, I'm bringing my grand, you know, my, she was like, you know, had her family over for dinner and stuff like that. And, um, you know, and I was waking her up in the middle of the night with the horrors and the sheets all wet and screaming and uh, drinking all the time and passing out. And she confronted me about my drinking. And um, uh, I used that gift that I have of just verbally just slicing her up and making her feel like she was the one that had the problem. And I really hurt her. I just really hurt her. And, um, you know, and it was just, you know, one more, you know, so she was, she was leaving. She was moving out. And uh, uh, because it was just getting too embarrassing, like, you know, I would hear them coming up the stairs. And I, I, it was very painful for me. I was in so much psychic pain as a result of my drinking that I physically hurt. And eye contact hurt. I didn't want to look at the light in people's eyes. It just hurt. You know what I mean? I just kind of like I, I didn't identify with normal living. I knew that I was real far from it. Something was really wrong with me. I didn't want to see you if I didn't have to. And I'd hear her come up the stairs with her grandmother and her sister. And I was like, oh, Jesus. Most of the time I made it to my bedroom in time and I would just stay in my room. And one time I didn't make it and I just got in the linen closet. And um, I figured they'd come in and have their little half-hour tea and run off and do some shopping, whatever they did. And um, they stayed for a long time. And I, I had a fear of dark, and I had a fear of holes as my drinking progressed. I just got all these kind of phobias. And so after a while, I just couldn't stand it in the closet, and I just came out. <laughs> so there they are sitting in the living room. I come out of the linen closet. What can you say? You bring the linen closet silent for 40 minutes, and you just come out. 
you know, the cover was blown, okay? She was, in a week, she was gone. She was moved out. And, um, and my bottom was just me with me. Just Gail left with Gail around the clock. That was my bottom. Listening, no diversion from my head. Listening to the rage, listening to the self-pity, listening to the anger, listening to all, you know, all the guilt and remorse about all the stuff I had stolen, the things that I had done. Um, and that's the nice package I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. This long-timer uh, had an 18-year-old girl with a year of sobriety and sent her to me while I was out in the parking lot um, smoking a cigarette and thinking about what floor I was going to get what booze from. And um, this 18-year-old girl with a year of recovery came home and talked to me, and nobody was talking to me at that time. I smelled because I had a phobia. I had all kinds of phobias, and one of them was I was not going to take a bath. I had some kind of thing going. So I didn't smell that great. Uh, I mean, I would wash clothes and everything. I just wouldn't wash me. <laughs> And I didn't smell that great, and I didn't look that great. Um, and uh, this girl came and she talked to me, and she invited me out for coffee. She asked me to meet her in the room in the hospital for coffee, and I didn't know her, didn't. Um, but it was just, a, you know, that, that little thing in us, the part of you that really wants to just die and just wants to get it over with. And then that little flame of life that's just so strong and so resilient that just, uh, you know, I was only like 19 years old, for Christ's sake. I should have been at the beach and talking about going to college and... Um, and so I was just so glad somebody talked to me and talked to me in a kind way because everybody was so pissed and angry at me all the time. And so I said I'd meet her in, the, in this room. And I went up there, and that's how I got to my first AA meeting. Um, I went in the door there, and there were like, you know, like 20 people standing around, you know, sitting around at a table. And I was really surprised. And uh, uh, that was August 1st of 1974. And um, here's, here's what the grace of God is, how good God is to me. This is the mercy of a power greater than myself. I haven't had a drink or a drug or a desire for a drink or a drug since that day. Um, isn't that incredible? <laughs> the thing that's really incredible about that to me is that uh, what us drunks do for each other that I really believe that if had there been no Alcoholics Anonymous, had there not been another drunk to tell me about the nature of my disease, that I, I probably would have been dead shortly because of the kind of things I was doing and the people that I was hanging with and um, my love of uh, danger. I just really loved um, up in the ante. I just loved it. Um, that wh- how I identified myself as an alcoholic was by listening to you guys. And um, I had no idea... Um, until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I was an alcoholic. It never occurred to me, even though I saw what drinking did to my dad and what it did to my family, it never occurred to me not to drink. I never had a choice about drinking. People talk about stepping over the line and, oh, it's like, what line? You know, I mean, I, right from the shoot, it, it was my deal. Um, when I, you know, when I uh, came to AA and you guys told me that it was a threefold disease and that, um, that even when we stopped drinking, I was still walking around with two-thirds of it and that that's a lot. You know, that physical is great. That's a, that's a great beginning, but I'm still walking around with the mental and spiritual part that's got to be dealt with. Um, when you told me about the nature of mind, when I heard it from you, um, I got it. I got it. And that's what I love about AA, that I think that God has given us the gift of doing for each other what no one else can. I, as much as I love my grandfather, I did not listen to what he had to say. As much as I love my mom, and I adore her, I, I, I did not listen to what she had to say. As much as I frightened my four younger brothers and sisters, I, I didn't care that I was supposed to be babysitting, and I end up on the other side of town, and then eventually on the other side of the country, and then eventually not coming home. Um, 
I didn't know what was wrong with me until you described your alcoholism. And as I listened to you a day at a time describe the nature of the disease, I said, I have that. I act like that. And then what was really astounding to me is that you talked about my secrets. The things that I had all that self-pity about and all that shame about and all that rage about and all that self-hate about, you guys talked about and even laughed about, which was really astounding to me. Um, And here's the other thing that was really astounding to me, that I was welcomed at my first AA meeting. Um, I was the baby of the group. I was like 20 years old, and the next person in the group um, who was considered themselves a young person in 1974 was 32 years old. And um, I remember how welcomed I was. I remember a woman that I'd never seen before putting her arm around me, and um, I started to cry at my first meeting because it was like, you guys read my mail. And there was part of me was greatly relieved, and another part of me was terrified because I knew the jig was up. I knew by the way you were talking that I wasn't going to be able to do what I did out in the street and get it over on you guys. But on an intuitive level, I got that. And I started to cry. And this woman that I, I came to know later very well, but I didn't, I put her arm around me. And with a great deal of compassion in her voice, told me that I was never going to have to feel that badly again. Um, if I didn't drink just for today. And I was kind of like, what does that have to do with anything? I didn't understand for a long time what not drinking, going to meetings and asking for help, how that was going to help me with my uh, debt problem, with my stealing problem, with my family relationship problem, how that stuff was going to help. Um, So I had to believe that you believed. You know, I had to just trust and you know, your higher power before I got my own. I had to believe that you believed. I had to identify myself in. And um, the drunk that I am, I mean, I, I've never been, I've never done it by the book. You know, um, you know, when they say, you know, the first year you don't make any major, major changes. You know, I was six weeks sober and I moved to, I moved to Paris, France. <laughs> I did, I'd been planning to go for years and I went over there and I stayed there until I was eight or nine months sober. And um, I did the same thing in France that I did, I learned to do the six weeks that I was in here. I didn't drink and I went to meetings. And some of them were in French. Um, and there was only two or three meetings at the American Church in Paris then, but I went there and the rest of them we made tapes and we did stuff for loners and I stayed sober there. And it was easier for me to stay sober in a foreign country than it was to come home and face the idea of being in Newport and facing my family and facing an old boyfriend and facing the people at the hospital. And I just needed that time to get on my feet. And while I was there, a woman with 10 years of sobriety said, you know what, Gail, it's really important that we stay sober on the ground that we got drunk on. She said, you're going to have to go home. At some point, you're going to have to go home. And you're going to have to make amends. You're going to have to work the steps and make amends to your family. And it uh, scared the hell out of me. And that's why I was in Paris. You know, and he's got, like, I did not want to look at my mother's face and see her hurt and her pain. And uh, uh, I didn't want to know about that, you know. And uh, anyway... Uh, that's what happened. Um, I came home and I proceeded to stay sober on the ground that I got drunk on. And uh, what happened was all the things that you guys promised to me would happen um, came true. Um, and I just came to believe that you believed. You told me that if I went through the steps the way they were written from 1 through 12 and did them the best I could, not to the best of my sponsor's ability, not to the best of somebody who was pushing, but to the best of my ability just a day at a time, that I would begin to get relief from the kind of pain that I was describing. That that self-pity and that rage and that anger and that lying and all that stuff, that pressure cooker stuff, that the 12 steps addressed that, um, that I had alcoholism and that the 12 steps addressed that. 
and it did. So I have to tell you, um, and the kind of hurt that I was in, if the 12 steps did not relieve it, I would have not have stayed around. I mean, at 20 years old, there's a whole bunch of options. You know what I mean? There's a whole bunch of things to join, you know? And, um, but I started to get relieved. And not only did I get relief working the program, just like my drinking spread out in my family, so did my recovery. My recovery. I could see the benefits of my recovery spreading out in my family. And um, I did, and I went and made, see, I did, I had really good sponsorship when I came in. And um, what they said was, you don't run home and make amends to your family right away. Let's start working on the ones that are less scary and build up some spiritual muscle and get some practice at it. And so make the ones that aren't so scary, and then the next ones, and then the next ones, and then I went home and talked to my mom, who was always wide open on like that. The first, the first time was wide open and just, just took me in. And then the more difficult ones, I was five years sober before my sister would even talk to me, you know, my only sister. And uh, I had to do it right by the book. I had to have her read the steps. I had to you know, really explain to her what I was doing. I had to build up five years of trust before she would even listen to me. I had damaged her so much. And what I had to know about that was that she acted the way she did because of my drinking. She had a right to feel the way she did because I would hit her and lie to her. And I just really abused her. She would look up to me with her little nine-year-old face and I was 13 years old and drunk and stoned. And I would just hit her and lie to her and confuse her. And she was severely damaged because of my drinking. And I just had to own up to that and give her that five years' time. But I tell you what God did for me. And so when I finally sat down with her and I made amends to her, right as I was making the amends and looking into her pretty face, she forgave me. She understood what I was doing, and she forgave me. And I tell you what, if that's the only thing that ever worked right for me, not the whole Anonymous, I could stay sober just on my amends to my sister alone. Uh, I will never forget the look on her face when I said to her, is there anything that you need to say to me, turning in, to relieve you and let us be sisters for the first time in our lives? And she said, yeah. There's some stuff I need to say to you. And I said, and just shut up and listen to her. There's not, I was told you don't defend anything. You don't rehearse anything. You don't make up any excuses. Just let her talk. And I just let her talk. And when she was done, I hugged her and I said, thank you. And I said, do you think we could be sisters? And she said, yeah. And from that time forward, uh, we have been real, I mean, she's one of my sponsors. If, I, if my ass is on fire, I call my mother and my sister on my sponsor. And, and, and there's no more powerful thing than that other than God. You know what I mean? I got the SWAT team. You know what I mean? My mother, my sponsor, my sister, I got the SWAT team. You know what I mean? It's just like I got my back all the time. And um, just that alone, I mean, so much more happening. We sober up, and uh, we finally get off our asses, and I got to go to college. And I got uh, a career that you just dream of. Where they, you know what I mean? They give an expense account, and they all over the country and I got to you know work in corporate America for 20 years so a wonderful things happened to me I got married got divorced <laughs> you know you stay sober for 26 years stuff happens you know <laughs> stuff happens good and bad and what I learned to do is just kind of like I'm real dedicated to this deal here and what I do is I don't drink and I come to meetings and um and I try to serve I just try to serve you know and um that real basic stuff has just saved my feeling so that um uh I've been able to do so much there's been so much joy um in my family because of my recovery I've watched my mom do a fourth and a fifth step just because she loved what the program did for me. I watched her pick up the 12th and 12th and read it and, and do a fourth and fifth step. Um, I got to see, uh, you, know, you, know, we, you know, we celebrate a lot, and I got to watch them become friends, from, you know, 
my home group, you know, I mean, just wonderful, wonderful stuff. You know, marriages in, in our home and babies christened and uh, holding on to each other through deaths and divorces. And, uh, um, you know, I made it to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I'm the oldest of five, and my brother, the brother right under me, uh, has been in prison almost as long as I've been sober. And that's a long time. Same thing, he's got the same thing that I got. Just got caught. Was doing the same things that I was doing. And sometimes I did them with him. He is in a correction institution. And I got to AA. So I have a real close example of the yet. You know. This is what I know. That I know that um, uh, sobriety is a day at a time thing. I know that 26 years of sobriety does not make you immune from drinking. I know that what I do today is what keeps me sober today, that uh, recovery has to be alive and kicking, that it's nice to have some AA history, but um, what I need to do is uh, suit up and show up today. So today I woke up and I just said, thank you, God. I'm so confident in God keeping me sober. I said, thank you, God, for another day of sobriety. Before I didn't even ask, I didn't beg for it. I just trust and love God. And I said, thank you for another day of sobriety. Thank you that I, I get to be at a surrounded by the fellowship. I stay in the middle of the herd, you know, so I don't fall off. You know, I stay right in the middle of this deal. And um, that I get to have the fellowship that I have. It's real wonderful. It's real warm. It's real good. And you guys have just loved and supported me. I, I, I couldn't do it without you. I couldn't do it without you. And I thank you that this deal is spread out to my family. Um, there's a lot of love and laughter in my life and the, and the comfort that I feel here. Never been to Wyoming before. I feel real comfortable and real accepted and just okay. I feel that 99% of the time wherever I am in the world because of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. Um, I am powerless over alcohol. I can't drink in safety. I can't do other substances either. And I don't go into that a lot, but I don't uh, shoot it, smoke it, snort it, drop it, uh, skin pop it. I, I, I don't do any of it, you know, and I don't drink just for today. And for the newcomer in, in the room, what I want to say to you is hang on to your seat. And I believe that I believe that if it can work for a crazy person like me, that it can work for you. If I can get sober, anybody can get sober. If I can uh, live a way of life that is clean and wide open and anybody can look at it from where I come from, anybody can do that. Anybody can. So, you know, hold on to your seat. It's a rough ride. It's like riding a Bronco. You know what I mean? But it's the most wonderful thing, that I, that I, the most scary, the most wonderful, the most hard, the most gentlest thing I've ever done is stay sober a day at a time. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love being in recovery. So I've talked for a long time, and you've listened for a long time, and thank you for your patience, and thank you for your gracious welcome here. Uh, 